accept your intuition, accept people who offer opportunities for you to share with them. Look at your blessings, count your blessings and not your problems. Understand that the God whom you choose to serve is bigger than anything out there. And if there's anybody in your life that are doubters or naysayers, that's their problem. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. From Studio A, deep in the heart of Texas, there was the voice of Mr. Don J that you heard of this at the beginning of this episode, episode number 233 of Sober Speak. And you will be hearing. So much more from Don Jay in just a moment, but first things first. This episode is brought to you by, sponsored by, if you will, Kim and Krista and Jason and Anna and Kurt and Adrian and Todd and Terry. What, you may ask, did Kim and Krista and Jason and Anna and Kurt and Adrian and Todd and Terry do? Well, they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the little yellow Donate tab, and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Kim and Krista and Jason and Anna and Kurt and Adrian and Todd and Terry. This episode is coming right out to you. I, John M., just another bozo on the bus, will indeed be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual virtual table, and let's get started. Today, we bring to you Mr. Don J. We're calling this episode Behind these walls is where I found God. Don Jay is from Duncanville, Texas, and has been sober since, are you ready? 1958. So you ask yourself, how many years is that? Well, let me help you with a little bit of math. That is 63 years Don Jay has been, epi- excuse me, Don Jay has been sober and this particular episode, uh, I loved recording this. Uh, it's part testimonial, 
part history lesson, and you'll understand what I mean by that uh, while listening to this episode. We discuss so much, but part of what we discuss is Don's, uh, the meetings Don attended with Bill Wilson and other AA pioneers. We talk about the death of Don's son while Don was in prison, while he was incarcerated. Uh, Don's definition of a, quote, mixed drink, unquote. (laughs) You're going to want to hear that part. Uh, We discuss what it was like for Don growing up in both society, uh, uh, in both AA, uh, and back in the 1940s and 1950s, and what that was like for him. We talk about the treatment center Don established, and so much more. Uh, You're really going to enjoy Don. Sit back, buckle up, uh, enjoy the ride, and I will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy, Don. Okay, everybody. So today, I've been really looking forward to this particular episode. We are sitting here with Mr. Don Jay. So first things first, Don Jay, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you wish, and tell people where you live. I live in Duncanville, Texas, right outside of Dallas. My sobriety date is October the 15th. 1958. I was born in 1937. You didn't tell me that, but I just throw that in for culture. Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go just real quick. I want you to go over that sobriety day one more time, just in case people didn't catch it. Because October the 15th of 1958. That's right. Yeah, I was. I, I'm two days old in black pepper. <laughs> You are two days older than Black Pepper. <laughs> uh, that's that's in recovery, man. <laughs> and, and when they look at me, I'm gonna say crack don't black. <laughs> black black just don't crack, okay? <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> that's great, Don. Okay. I'm saying that because people can't see me, but my head is white. And my skin is black. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You yeah. have a beautiful head of gray hair there. I must admit, it's quite yeah. a contrast. I really like it. Thank you, buddy. And, and for all the ladies out there that's looking, uh, I'm I'm old, but at the same time, I'm looking for a nurse with a purse before I need a hurry. <laughs> Well, well, if any of you fine ladies want to get a hold of Don, just email me at john at silverspeak.com and we will get you uh, over to Don. <laughs> we're, we're matchmakers here at Silverspeak. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. So I, I want to just first of all say a couple of things. Number one, how we met each other. Uh, okay. We were at the Texas State Convention yes. and a common friend of ours, Mr. Reno John, who's been on the podcast several times, introduced you to me and uh, suggested, and I'm so glad he did, is that we get you on the podcast. And uh, uh, I'm glad to be here. And I also want to say, give a little shout out to your 
your IT professional there, John, who is in the room with you. And John, uh, John, his, his name is John Thompson. And John has been helping Mr. Don here with getting set up uh, in, re in regards to IT. And he's done just a fabulous job. And, and thank you so much, uh, John Thompson. I appreciate it. I, I believe John is one of your friends from church. Is that right? That is correct. He's an elder at my church. And uh, we became fast friends once we got into a on a committee that's called Crucial Concerns About Racism. I'm I'm so I'm so glad. Uh, and John is just a sweetheart of a guy. And yes. as you know, uh, getting some of this technical. So so how old are you? So help me with the math there. H how old are you? I'm 84. 84. And so sometimes getting the technical stuff kind of straight and all worked out can be kind of tough. And uh, John's been able to help out with that. Well, it's not because of my, my age, it's because of my vision. I'm blind in my right eye and I'm slightly blind. I got low vision in my left just so I can have a, a little bit of sight in my left eye. So you just can't see that. Uh, yeah, all I can't the... see it. But, but I don't act like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> okay, so and how many years ago, 1958, how many years have you been sober? This is my 63rd year. we 64 this coming October. Wow. So, you know, when you had the, when they have those countdowns at the very I'm, I'm the last one standing. <laughs> but, hey, hey, John, back then it didn't want me. Now I'm hot there all on me. <laughs> oh, that's great. But, back then I come into the rooms and they want me to hurry up and get out. As soon as the meeting was over, we didn't even let me play no cards. We didn't let me play no dominoes. And really? now, that got, now that I got old, I'm a relic. I'm an, I'm an antique. I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> okay, well, let, let's talk about that a little bit. You said they didn't want you to play cards or they wanted you to leave the room. What, what, talk to me about that a little bit. Well, you see, when I came, when I let me back up a little bit. Okay. And I'm going to back up so I can quantify and then qualify why I'm saying what I'm saying, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. I was a little kid, and I drank chalk with, for my granddaddy, something like that, so they gave me that kind of stuff. And my grandfather was a good guy that uh, <clears throat> really believed in, in the spiritual concept of humanity. I think he had a part, a lot of Indian in him or something like that, too. But anyway, uh, he made homebrew, and that's how I learned how to start drinking. I love the taste. I I, when I quit drinking, I didn't quit drinking because I didn't love the taste. Uh, I, I liked alcohol, and I still loved it. I, even though I was a teenager, I still was able to learn how to drink and enjoy good whiskey or good liquor or good booze. Uh, it just made me feel good. You remember the saying of how people used to do when they, they, they drank something and didn't like it? They go, <laughs> oh, that shit's good. Well, yeah. that, that was me. I don't care what it was. I felt like it was good. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the burning sensation and all that. But anyway, I'm trying to qualify you to so, so that people understand what I'm saying is, is that as a youngster, they gave me the alcohol to put me to sleep because I was a maybe a talkative person or a little baby that did a lot of stuff. And they didn't want me doing a lot of stuff. I was a firstborn grandchild. And so I was living with my grandparents and all at the time. And so as a result, when I got older, <clears throat> I just continued to drink. 
And, and, and so my father, he was an owner of a restaurant, and I was busboying in his tables uh, in, in his restaurant one time, and I found that people, a lot of people didn't drink all the alcohol. And I did, I, and so my cousin and I, who were in the restaurant working as busboys and wait persons and stuff like that, clean up people and all, that's all we were doing because we were too young to do anything else. And, and we would we'd get them to go gallon cans and save save all that liquor. We, we split the beer, the different kinds of beer, and then we put that in one bucket. We didn't care. We That was our mixed drinks. We didn't care if it was Budweiser. We didn't care if it was Slits. We didn't care if it was False Staff. We didn't care if it was Jacks or Grand Prize or Southern Select. We just put it all in the bucket and we just drank it. And we'd laugh <laughs> like hell. <laughs> we'd get to drinking back there. And so I would stay drunk most of the doggone time and didn't realize I was drunk. It was just a way of life for me, you know. Uh, it was a pleasure to drink. It was a pleasure to go to my daddy's restaurant and work. It was a pleasure to go to my grandpa's house and be around him. You know, not only the stories that he told, but the little drinks he would give me because he wanted to put me to sleep at a certain time of the evening, okay? So that was my beginning. And then uh, early on in life, uh, I began to see other guys that was my age and all smoking and drinking and doing stuff. And I got introduced to that at the same, the same way, you know? And so I learned early on how to be a participant. And I realized that you didn't have to win at nothing. All you had to do is be a participant. You know, in football or whatever it be, somebody got to win, somebody got to lose. And if I fell out or drank myself to an oblivion or something, I didn't care. Or if I had a good time, I didn't have no good time. I just wanted to be a participant because I knew I was going to be a participant with the drinking. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, so t tell me about when, I guess, you first – uh, started getting into trouble, if you will, with the drinking. Uh, obviously, it happened fairly early on because your sobriety yeah. date is fairly. Yeah, uh, well, I, well, I got in trouble not only early on. I got in trouble when I wasn't doing nothing. You know, I was at a, I was at one of the taverns where the, before I got into elementary school, where you go to the hot dog stands and all that by the school and all, and 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 somebody broke into a juice box, and I kept money on me all the time. Because between nine and eighteen years of age, I was working. I had a study little job, and uh, and the money was coming. I was making two dollars fifty cents an hour. Where they threw baseballs at me, called hit the trigger, doctor. You know what? <laughs> oh, anyway, wow. they call it dunk tanks. You know what I mean? I'm gonna be polite and say you know what. But anyway, it hit the trigger, doctor. Anyway, all right. So I would sit there and I'd fall in the water from time to time. They paid me two dollars and fifty cents an hour at the fair park at the state of Texas. So that was when I was a little kid doing that between 9 and 18, and, and I made so much money, I didn't have nothing to do with it but save it. So when I was when I was 18, I married on my 18th birthday, I was 1955, and I bought a card for, at that time. So that meant I lived in one year and went to the other three out. Now, my drinking continued from between that time period when I went to work at this place at the Fair Park. I was out in an audience. My mom and grandma was uh, at a bingo place playing bingo uh, there in Dallas, Texas, and as a result, <clears throat> I wandered away, and I heard this noise down the street where this barker was calling people in, and it was, a, it was like a glass house, they call it, where the mirrors would show you different images of yourself, and it was right next door to this this uh, Duncan tank, and uh, as a result, the guy, the guy, I'm mimicking this guy. He would talk, I talk. He'd talk, I talk, so I've always been a talker, and uh, he said, you're so smart. You come up here and talk, talk on the microphone. I ain't no problem. So I went up there and I was talking to the microphone and I was getting people to come in. I don't know if I was cracking jokes or what I was doing, 
But anyway, I got thirsty. My throat got dry. And he had some beer under the counter there. And I reached over there and got me a drink of that. You know, and, and that was right down my alley. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I drank it all up. <laughs> and then they go get some more. And then, uh, and then as it got later on in the evening before midnight or right at midnight, the everything closed down. And my grandmother and my mom, them come looking for me because I'd wonder where they had missed me. And they heard all this noise. They heard my voice. So they came down there. They, boy, you come over down here. Get your butt down from up there. And the man said, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, hey, young man, you got me a big cry. Everything done closed down. And he gave me a $20 bill. My grandma said, you going to back tomorrow night, too? <laughs> <laughs> so I kept going back. And then they didn't have no work for me. But the guy next door, his name was Ed Meeks. He owned a the, 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 lot of the entertainment centers out there in the Fairport. And so he hired me. And I was I became such a good attraction that I moved me from an end tank to the center tank where they had two targets on my tank. And that meant that if people could hit the target and knock the door down, I'm supposed to fall. Well, I'm such a clown, I put my back against one wall and my feet against the other, and I wouldn't fall. And all they'd go crazy throwing them balls. Even guys on the other side of the talk gonna say, <laughs> the seats is already flapped open now. I'm there, but I don't fall. So after they throw all them baseballs and got to buy some more balls, I fall in the water. I got to fall one time and say all them times them boys could knock me down. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was smart, man. Yeah. I, I was smart. I was a smart addict. I was a functional <laughs> drunk and didn't know it. So I got into trouble a lot of times. Now, that was one time when the police came and I had money in my pocket from working and they thought that I had broken to this machine. Now, back then, jukebox didn't have no dollar machine. I have a roll of dollar bills as well as other coins and stuff in my pocket. But they didn't take that into consideration. They just saw that I had money. And so I went to juvenile home. They took me to jail and took me to juvenile. And when my mom and dad all come to get me, they want to know what the heck happened. I said, I don't know. They thought I was lying. So I was at school later on in life. I was at school one time, and they were shooting dice in a trough, a concrete water trough. And I was standing there looking at them. They called it sweating the game. And so somebody called the police, and the police came, and they took me to juvenile again. So my thing was, well, hell, if I'm going to be going to juvenile all these times for something I ain't doing, I might as well be doing what they said I'm doing. <laughs> so I started doing what everybody was openly, you know. I already had a taste for alcohol, so that wasn't no problem. And then I learned how to smoke good stuff, Appaloosa Gold. I was able to then enjoy the better life. And so then they introduced me to them uh, little old purple looking pills and, and and I was showing off on the road. So I was working, had a good job, was married, but I still would get into trouble because of my association with the friends that I was running around with. Now I have deducted that God wanted me to understand what I had to go through to do what I'm doing today. Because everything that I'd done back then was a training camp for me. I learned how to become an alcoholic I learned how to stay clean and sober in spite of everything that's going on. John, let me tell you something. <clears throat> I found out here recently, man, that during my young years, I was I was right along in parallel with the civil rights movement. This is February, Black History Month. John's been working with me about black history as well. And I've been thinking, man, back in the 50s, hell, we, the Black Panthers was getting started. I'm in jail. Well, I was born in 37 now, all right, 47. I'm going through all kind of stuff with my parents. I want to play because my mom worked in service. And here it is in, in, in 57, 
Uh, yeah, I'm in, I, you know, I'm in prison. I'm in jail. I go to prison. You know what I mean? And then before I'm 60, before 1960, I, I released December 9, 1960. The civil rights movement really going strong. I get released in 1960, December 9th. I'm home in 61. That's when the Freedom Rider was going on. Can you understand that, man? I'm in parallel yeah. with what's going on in history and not even knowing it. By 1963, you know, uh, Kennedy was killed right here in my own city. I got a contract to start a, 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 a John Toe delivery service in 1963. I ain't got no money, ain't got no training, ain't got no nothing, man. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm an ex-offender. And yet I'm getting to become an entrepreneur in all these different areas. So, man, it's God. God had his hands on me, guiding me and putting me in a position to be who I was, who I was going to become. I had no plans or no nothing. But I look at my life as a parallel to what was going on all the time. You see what I'm saying? I do. So I want to back up a little bit here, too. And, and I want to talk about your entree into Alcoholics Anonymous and what it was like then and uh, what your experience was in AA. How did you get there? How did you find AA? <laughs> I found AA. My son was killed in 1958 in Dallas, Texas. I was in prison in Huntsville, Texas. And when I got back from my son's funeral, I remember telling my counselor, my ex-late mother-in-law was saying he's drinking and drugging and acting a damn fool and the son even cold in his grave. I don't know if I was going to come in from the cemetery. I just remember telling my counselor what she had said about my behavior. And he says, Don, we need to put a group together for you people. My people mean colored. We were Negro colored people back then. And we did them by numbers. <clears throat> and so my group was number 13. And we met in the back, and we went up the back steps and met at night, and the white boys met, because we were segregated back then, you see. And so we didn't never meet together. We would meet separately, and then we would meet together on the yard or something like that and talk. But they gave me a big book of the 12 and 12. And the first thing I did was read, read I didn't know about no 164 pages, nothing like that, no preamble and all that. I didn't know about no Bill and Bob or who was starting this and all that stuff. But God also gave me an insight well, I read when the family afterwards. I said, I wonder what it's going to be like when I get out of here. And that caught my attention. 133 hit me. Happy, joyous, and free. Your misery is by your own making. I went, damn, shit. I know this is true because I ain't done nothing. You know what I mean? I didn't get caught doing nothing. And so here I am in prison at an early age of my life. We're still drinking and drugging while we're in prison because you can make chalk while you're there. And man, look at him, I was having a damn blast. And so when my son got killed all day that day, they said, Willie Don Johnson was killed in Dallas, Texas today in a car accident. And everybody said, man, that's you. That's your name. I know that a lot of folks have the same name, but I didn't think that I had a son that was killed. He was not even two years of age. He was born in 1956 and he died in 58. So he was almost two years of age. So here I am thinking, <clears throat> That ain't me. I don't know about that. I kept laughing and joking with the guys about this name being killed at me all day. The warden called me to the office that night. And when the warden called me in, he gave me a cigar and told me to sit down because he knew I smoked a big old. I smoked an productive cigar. He smoked them seconds. You know, the kind of cigar you smoke <laughs> had way they turn on rabbit on you. But I wanted to give him a cigar, but he was the warden, so I didn't say that to him. <laughs> so I, lay, I laid there listening. Finally, he blew it up. He, he came down. He said, son, I got something to tell you. Bad news. Your son was killed today in Dallas, Texas, in a car accident. And it hit me. I did have a fun. And boy, all the fun left me then. 
And I put the cigar down. I remember that very clearly. And he said, they want you to come home. And the education director, Mr. Langley, had already arranged with the, we had a, we had a choir. It was a colored choir. It was 31 of us in the choir. We sang a cappella in the rodeo. And we'd sung that first Sunday in the rodeo. And they gave us a dollar per Sunday. And these guys dedicated their dollars for me to get a bus ticket. So they gave me a reprieve to go home. And I went to Dallas <clears throat> with the clothes that they, you know, put on your back, them khaki uniform, the big old boots. And I was sitting on my mother's front porch when I got off that bus. I caught a bus and went to her house. And she was afraid to drive in her own driveway when she saw me on the porch. She thought I'd have escaped because by her grandson's daddy was on her porch. And here he was standing there with his hands behind him as if I had handcuffs on. And she was probably ashamed. I don't know what all running through her mind. I just know that my mama never admitted to the fact that there are, I drank or had a drinking problem or I spoke and had a spoken problem or any of those issues. And she, to her dying day, she, she was 99, five months and 18 days young when she died. And she still would tell you she never seen me drink. She never seen me smoke and never smelt it. She was in denial. So anyway, I, when I got out of prison, when people asked me, Doc, <clears throat> Uh, what branch of service you serve? I said, I didn't serve the United States. I served the state. If anybody caught that, that was fine. If they didn't, hell, it didn't make me no difference. I wasn't lying to my mama. <laughs> but, but she was going right tell everybody I was in the service or something. You know, yeah, I served the service all right. But the state, well, they didn't pay me a damn dime. <laughs> Polishing brands and bumping flows was going on. But anyway, that's how I got introduced to AA. It was in prison. And, uh, and, I, and I'm going to write me a book. I'm going to call From Behind These Walls. Is where I found God. Uh, that's when I really began to understand the truism of what God is like, you know, and what is, which, what I read at night, I'd read other material as well, but I read a lot about the books, uh, the stories in AA. And, you know, I don't care how many times you go back and read that stuff, John, there's more that's going to be real, revealed to you. It, it became real. And so, I, and the guys, <clears throat> The guys began to understand me as a person who could read. I was literate, and some of them were not. And I'd read to them and help them, and they and they began to see me as a voice uh, with this program. And so our program grew in the number thirteen. And uh, and when I got out of prison, <clears throat> they told me to go home and start a group uh, of my people of my kind, you know, which meant Negro colored people. But we weren't ready for no AA back then. Uh, that was not even now. You go to these rooms today. You know, for five many people of color, and then yeah. Still, so, uh, can you talk to that a little bit? Why is that? Do you have a theory it's a, it's on a, that? Yes, yeah, it's an ism system. Uh, we didn't have no sanitariums. We had no isms about <clears throat> participating in stuff like that. We would put all of the people who had a mental problem or any kind of isms in the back room and keep Uncle Charlie and Aunt Susie back in the back room, and we take care of myself. We had no hospitals. We had no sanitariums. You know. Uh, we didn't believe in that kind of stuff as a race because we were not included. We were not segregated enough to talk about sanitarium or mental illness or mental issues like that. And sometimes it was a sh they they took mental people and put them out to pasture, like or they put them to work in certain things that they could do. Uh, you know, from farm industry to the industrial industry, and and so we were like cattle. We were not human beings. We were not people owned us back in the day, and we did whatever people would say to us. And if they beat us or hit us or whatever they called us concussions or whatever, that was just part of life, the paid war. So as I grew older, uh, we I remember having some people who had some issues uh, in, in my family that was in back rooms, and you know, they'd let us see them every now and then. And 
they we go either we had to take them some food or something like that. So anyway, when I got home, <clears throat> uh, there was a group already going, and I I met people like Bill and and uh, and uh, and and Sil uh, uh, Cersei and uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and 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 uh, uh, W O Bankston and uh, and Don Newcomb and. Uh, and all these guys that would come come to town, and we'd be oh, meeting. Okay, well, hold on, hold on, just a second there. L- let's back up a little bit because yeah. <laughs> there are very few people left today. Yeah, that have actually people people around here know who Cersei is. When I say here in the Dallas Fort yeah, Worth yeah. area, but not everybody, but everybody knows who Bill Wilson is. So, w- talk to me about. I, I mean, did you meet him once, twice? I don't know how many times we met because I'd go to the different media and people would be there. I didn't know who they were. Al Badger was Al Badger was a manager down to the Dolphins Hotel, and we met down there. And they got me a job working at Walgreens on the corner of at the Dolphins Hotel. So I'd go in there and meet all the time. If I couldn't go in the meet, they wouldn't let me in the meet. I sit at the door. I'd listen to what was going on. I was called a spook who sat by the door for real. <laughs> well, wait a sec. When you say if if they wouldn't let you in the meeting, are you saying that because it, it was segregated? Yeah, everything was segregated back then, man. And then when I started going to places, if you know anything about Dallas, they are town north group segregated, suburban group segregated, Preston yep. group segregated, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, the Mesquite group, even the suburban areas were segregated. And when they start opening them places up, you know, I, I was one who's been around, so I would go, you know, and then some of the guys who, and when I opened up my facility called Welcome House, some of them white guys, and I had one for women, and I opened up one for women. They wanted to be part of where I was because I had all they were. It wasn't black women most. It was all mostly white women and white men that came into recovery, not black. And so they would get them to clean up their houses or, or go to their private men clubs or places. You know what I'm saying? One would leave with nothing and come back with bags full of stuff. You know what I'm saying? So you know what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, but anyway, uh, Cersei was 11 years older than me in the program, and my sponsor was named Jimmy Gallion. And Jimmy would take me around to, he got me going to the prison, the federal prison in Fort Worth, the president of prison, prison in Sigerville. And to and I got my first card to go back to Huntsville. My number is 444 to speak. And Jimmy Gallion, he was a preacher with the Christian church. And he would take me around. He and, and Ted Trimble was a doctor in Wiley, Texas. And they would take me around to these different colleges and universities. And I'd speak. I'd go to these different churches and I'd speak. And so they helped me to to get on my feet in the early part of my recovery. I didn't know what was going on. It was just God preparing me to be a person of faith, a person who was colored, but to understand humanity. Uh, because I was one who always was in the problem of helping people become I'm like a peacemaker, you know, keeping things cool. I don't know if it was best for our communities. We didn't have a ride. But I, I remember them sending me to, to Los Angeles when they had a ride out there to be the Panthers and stuff to find out what's going on. The mayor of the city of Dallas sent me out there. I was with the commissioners of something, I don't know. But but uh, Griswold was one who was a, uh, one of the heads of that deal. I don't know if he was the FBI or what. But but Bob Lamb was also, and I, I know I'm looking off the subject, but I'm just talking about stuff that had happened to me while I was in my recovery. And, 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 and I didn't understand what was going on. I just was I was just glad to be part of whatever the thing was happening. And then at nine, I'm realizing it was all during the same time. Yes, there was riots going on. Yes, there was struggles going on. Yes, there was brutality going on. But I was always a favorite. I, I was like a chosen child. 
And I look back and I parallel my life uh, with uh, with the biblical characters. I was one who was a uh, who was just like like God and said, "I want you to do this. I want you to go." And I said, "Okay." I was not one who rebelled and said, "I ain't going." I ain't, I ain't not me. Don't send me. But I was one who always thrown that fire furnace and come out unscorched. You know, I was always one who put in a jailhouse and nothing happened. You know, they let me show you. I'm gonna show you how God worked, man. I'm in I'm in prison, Huntsville. They sent me. They told me one night I'm on a chain gang going to uh to a, another farm, East Town. And I get all my little stuff together, and I say, man, to myself, I ain't gonna stay. They ain't supposed to have a one locker when you're in prison. I got four damn lockers. I'm the I'm the guru. I'm the commissary. <laughs> when the commissary told, <laughs> I'm the man. <laughs> I leave all of my stuff. I give my keys to another guy. Say, him, man, you run it while I'm gone. I'll be back. He said, man, you ain't coming back. They said, your ass East Ham, boy. Don't you know what East Ham is? I said, shit, man, I'll be back. We get down to East Ham, and they said, everybody on the train, all right, they called them. Give me your number. And it got to me. I'm the last one on there. He said, 14, 25, 83. You stand on the bus. You going back. I say to myself, I, say, I knew I was going to go back. I knew I was going to do that. And I thank my God then. So that's what I knew. I found God while I was in the walls, man. And he had his hands on me. He let me have a taste of everything that kind of goes on around and in prison. So I would be able to understand it. When I got to Dallas and finally opened up a place of my own where people could identify with what I call the welcome house is a facility which I own today. And so I know today in my heart's heart that ain't not, it wasn't about me. It's how God chose me to do what I'm doing. Now, all them folks who didn't want me in them rooms back in the day, and they want me sitting there playing with them cards or the table or dominoes or playing 42 or uh, 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 whatever that other thing is called, moon, shoot. I learned how to shoot the moon in prison, 42 and all that stuff. So they didn't want me in there no how. Because if they played for money, shit, hell, they would have had no money. They, 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 <laughs> they were, most, of, most of them were real estate. They always, in, see, most of the people that are white, they wasn't, they wasn't in, them, in them suburban places. They had money. They weren't no poor white boys. You know, now they, they were not them drunks that come off the street. These, these guys wore suits and ties. You know, they, yeah, they look like a crew. They look like the crew clan number without the sheets on, you know what I'm saying? Boy, boy, I tell you, you know. And, and so then I learned Don Moore. He was a real estate agent. His name was Don. And Don and I was about the same size. He started giving me his shirts and things. I had monogram shirts named Don. But when he, when he, and they were all good stuff. And he, and he sent them to the laundry. They come back just nice and pretty. Wasn't no rivals, no holes, no cigarette burn, nothing, man. They just good stuff. And his jackets, his jackets. These damn jackets were like Neiman Marcus jackets, man, or, or Reynolds and Pennell jackets, stuff like that. I mean, good stuff. I'm going like, damn. So I was dressed up all the time, too, man. <laughs> <laughs> Never had to spend a dime. Shit, I had spent none of my money. You know, it was, it was a gift. <laughs> so I'm learning how to dress good, look good, and I found out that people in AA in the room, man, they look at people when you dress. So when I dress, when I go to meetings, I wear coats and ties most of the time. I wear good watches. And I wear different watches so that people can see that I got on something different every day. You know, and I'm not trying to wear them colorful clothes to be a clown. I'm wearing stuff for people to look at so they can see that you can dress up and you look good. When you look good, you feel good. When you feel good, you impress other folks. When you talk to other folks, you get their attention and you can tell them your story. They listen to you. And it, it, yeah. So, okay, I want to talk a little bit about you. You talked about opening your place in, uh, like a, I guess, as a treatment center, right? Yeah, and halfway. So, halfway. how did that come about? Man, I, in 1964, 
I was releasing December 9, 1960. 1964, three and four, two, three and four. I'm keeping guys that I find them that come off the street in my home. Like I went to visit one of my friends who I went to high school with. And his mom said he went to the Navy and I went to prison. And she said, he ain't him, but he made me down at that car. It was a house up on the hill. And showing up, he was down in that old car, drunk, bottles all in the car. He was in his old Navy tea jacket, dirt all around the car with the street troopers that went around it for I don't know how many t- times or how many years. Wasn't no code enforcement to keep junk cars off the street in my neighborhood. And and so he he was uh, in no, in no code enforcement to make people move junk cars. And no t- it's all on flats and everything else there, too. But anyway, he was in there, and I got him out of that car, got him the recollection of who I was. I took him home with me, and I was just, he and I, we talked, drank coffee. Back then, I drank coffee, but I found out that coffee make you black, so I quit drinking it, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I got, I've I been in rooms, man. I thought that you had to drink coffee to stay sober, but they give me ulcers. I kept gas, so I quit, I quit drinking coffee, man. My, my life got so much better. But anyway, I got him, and so then, we looked for somebody else one day, and we found the quarterback of the high school football team. Man, he he was delusional. He was summertime. He went overcoach, but anyway, we got him and took him home with me. And then we said, "Man, we need somebody else. We have a team to play dominoes and cards with." And so we found another guy. We, his name was Tom, and we took Tom home with us. And we found that Tom was different. He wasn't just an alcoholic. He didn't like to drink. He was a little strange. He had some mental issues, you know. He he could see stuff that we couldn't see, you know. Not from drinking, but just because of who he was, he wasn't going to his head. So back then, they had an institution in Terrell, Texas, you know, which was a sanitarium, mental health sanitarium, and we'd get twenty five dollars if you brought somebody in. And we took him. The three of us got him in my daddy's station wagon, took Tom to Terrell. We get him to the administration office, and first thing they say, "Hey, Tom, we wonder where you went, man." <laughs> He was escapee. He was never escapee. <laughs> so we we lost our twenty five dollars, and we lost our player that could play cards with us. <laughs> but then that's what gave me another intro into going into Terrell. And my sponsor, let me show you again a parallel correlation. My sponsor wound up in Terrell uh, after many years in recovery. Because he would give his credit card to guys in recovery that he tried to help like he did me. And they abused him. Men and women, they abused him and his credit card. And his family wound up putting him in the terror. And, you know, he was a white guy. But when I go to see him, once he, I knew I could go see him, he saw me. He said, that's my son. My son. They thought he was really crazy as hell in, you know. And so I talked to him. And I found he wasn't crazy. He had a good heart. And he met well. And he was able to share his resources with folk, and they just abused him. He was he lived in Roxton, Texas, uh, near Pecan Gap, going towards Paris, Texas. And so he was he was just a good guy. But he loved to he he was he had been sober for a few years. I don't know how much sobriety he had older than I. But he and his wife they had a pecan farm, and they had some other stuff uh, down there in, in that city. And I'd go down there and share with them and all. But uh, I was. More of a son than his son was to him. And we got him out of there after we talked to the counselors and got him back home and got him straight. And they took all his credit cards away from him. But he showed me a new way of living. That's how to share. You know, when you when you give up whatever it is that you're doing, you clean up your own life, you trust God, and you help others. I don't care what happens, man. It's the best thing in the world for you. So starting Welcome House, 
After that, one of the guys told me, he says, man, you don't need to be keeping them guys in your house. And he brought them to a Lutheran church called Mount Isaac Lutheran Church. It was on Forest Avenue at the time. Now it's Martin Luther King and Dollar Sector. And he had a boss that was a good believer in humanity. And his boss came over and talked with me. They both were in the economic department. And after they talked and I talked with him about what was going on. And then another guy who was there who was a, a black guy who was a social worker, he and his wife, after listening to my story and what was going on, they quit drinking. And they joined what we called AA back then. But we didn't call it that. We just called it sharing. And um, we, we started sharing and all. And they said, let's find a place for uh, people that want to come in and, 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 and not drink. And what we're going to call a place, you know, if we get them out of your house, they said, well, dog was welcome people into his home. Let's call it a welcome house. So that's how welcome house name <laughs> came about. And so at SMU, the, an attorney, he was there and uh, with these other two guys from SMU. And he wrote my, helped me write my articles, my bylaws. He helped me write my charter. And he let me. He helped me write the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, citation to get my five hundred one c three with with IRS whole nine yards. And they helped me get my first building. And so the guys that I got my first building from, it was a it was a it was a it was a burnt out uh, automotive place on Haskell, which we still own the land, right behind the Fair Park, about two and a half blocks from the Cotton Bowl. And we fixed it up, and we got two beds in and four beds, and finally we had up to. 20-some beds in this particular facility. Most of my accommodating people, clientele, was white. But the first guy who was of color was an Indian. <laughs> and, and the second of color was a Mexican. And back then, the city jails was, was segregated, and the county jail was segregated. And so I was able to tell. And then we had a place on, on, on Harwood Street that the, uh, Mr. Sheffield had an ice company there on Harwood and Cadiz, and he allowed us to, he allowed Tom, uh, Harry Marnie to open up that facility. He was a manager, and Harry showed me how to operate a facility like I did with Welcome House, and, I, and we did a test trial. We put a guy in there who was actually a Negro and see how he worked in there, and he worked fine, and so he became the manager for Welcome House. Anyway, make a long story short there, I got, I got, I got uh, uh, Bill Deckham, the sheriff of Dallas, I got Charles uh, back to Charles back to police chief for Dallas. I got Henry Wade, who was the uh, uh, who was a uh, district attorney in Dallas, and then there was another guy named uh, he was he was a he was a commissioner Rosebud or somebody. But anyway, he was a notorious dude back in the day. But I got all them guys together. I said, look, man, these people drink together on the streets, and they come in here and they're all right on my place. Let's try to see what we can do at the at the city jail first, and then when they arrest folks if they can cohabitate. And so they did. They did fine. And then we did a jail. So we integrated the city jail, the county jail. And then finally, I don't know who and how it got integrated into, into federal prison, not the federal, the state prison, but they finally integrated the state prison too. So, but back in the day, everything was segregated. And I was part of what was going on when integration was occurring. I had no idea that, uh, that that was part of my journey on, 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 on this, on this trip that I was been taking for all these years in recovery, in and out of the walls. So my life was in the walls, a learning experience. That's where I found God, I say. When I got in the first Presbyterian church, that's where I found, you know, what what religion was about. And when I got in the AA, really in the AA, that's where I found my spirituality. So amongst the three, that's my holy trinity. And I've been, and every time something comes up that's adverse, 
I would be able to say to myself, Don, you are blessed. And I would let nobody take the joy out of my living because that was a saying that my mama had and my dad had said, if I put you on my shoulder, son, you're supposed to be able to see further than me. And so I've been able to use those mottos. I've been able to use what the guys taught me in prison by never coming back. Once you get your butt out of here and when you're going home, don't you ever come back because they said to me, this is what happened to me. I killed this sucker. I did this. I beat this woman up. I did this. I did that. And sure enough, when I got home, the, everything the boys told me was in my life. My, my, my wife was dating somebody else. They said, going to be a Jody there, man. But he but he's going to be able to have the lights on. He got the rent paid and all that good stuff. And you're going home and you ain't got nothing. I left prison with three pennies. That's all I had in my pocket on my books. And they gave me a $5 script and a bus ticket. And I'm going from three pennies to where I am today. Wow. I love it. Well, so, Don, we're going to kind of wrap it up here. But you have a platform right now. You're talking to quite a few people out there. or You will be once I release this episode. If you could sum up whatever kind of experience, strength, or hope that you want to share with others in regards to your experience with life or in Alcoholics Anonymous, could you kind of wrap a bow around that for me? For my life of experience, strength, and hope is, is that I never planned and I never measured about what was going on to go on or going on for an outcome. I would say, accept your intuition, accept people who offer opportunities for you to share with them. Look at your blessings, count your blessings and not your problems. Understand that the God whom you choose to serve is bigger than anything out there. And if there's anybody in your life that are doubters or naysayers, that's their problem. For you to have a dream or not have a dream, but to have a passion, go with it. I've been married full time and I haven't found the right one to stay with me yet, but I'm still happy, joyous, and free. <laughs> oh, Don, this has been absolutely fantastic. I, I'm so glad that we ran across each other at the Texas State Convention and uh, you are a treasure. And I told uh, Reno John I was going to be talking to you today, and he said to give you a shout-out and just to let you know that uh, he said, please tell him I said hello. He's one of my favorites, and I can see why you are one of his favorites. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it very much. And you tell whomever it is that you're going to be talking to in the future, I'd love to be part of the ongoing sharing uh, because I think there's another plat not only platform like this, but a platform to let people know I'm going to put a book together eventually and I'm going to sell it. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm told I've always lived in a gated community. I've always lived behind some kind of wall. I got an electronic gate right here in my house. Now. <laughs> I'm 84 <laughs> years old. <laughs> but that's another story for another time. <laughs> and, and if anybody out there wants to get in touch with Don, <clears throat> just email me, John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com, and I will get you his way. And Don, we always end the uh, episodes here with a reading from page 164 of the big book. And I'm going to do that now. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. 
give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Don, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Don, I so appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And God bless America. Isn't Don just fantastic? Oh, gosh, I so much enjoyed being able to spend time with him. Uh, If you want to get in touch with Don, uh, feel free to send me an email to john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. We can get you in touch with him. Or if you want to get in touch with or you have comments about any of the other speakers or guests that we have on the podcast, I always like to get feedback on them, Uh, you know, hear how they impacted people. Absolutely love it. Or if you just want to email me and just say hi, I'm at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. Uh, feel free to write on in. You may get featured on what we're about to do right now. Listener feedback. So on to a little bit of listener feedback. Krista writes in and she says, Hey, John, this is Krista from Al-Anon. I'm thinking of you today as I re- read the letter from Dr. Silkworth in the big book. He wrote, quote, the unselfishness of these men, we have come to know them, uh, as we have come to know them, excuse me, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and warily in this alcoholic field. And then Krista says, this just embodies sober speak, the guests, you and the host. I'm inspired. Thank you so much. You're a big part of my recovery every day. Krista, how kind. Uh, I do not put myself, uh, um, I, you know, at that level, they're pioneers and such like that. But I really appreciate the sentiment. And uh, that's so sweet of you to write in and to think of us while you're reading uh, out of the big book. Uh, it's just That's just so sweet. I appreciate it. Julie writes in and she says, Hi, John, I downloaded all of your PDF files on the website and started working the steps. Godspeed. Okay, so what Julie's talking about here is that if you go to the website, www.soberspeak.com, in fact, let me go there right now so I don't point you in the wrong direction. And if you go there and you click under, oh, there's something at the top called Sober Resources. And we have some step worksheets out there. Now, I want you to know, uh, we have about half of the steps in there right now, and there's more coming. Um, And and they're worksheets for all of the steps. But I, I do want you to know that I realize that there are about a billion guides, work step, you know, ways to... To, to uh, work steps. Is, did I just say that? There are about, about a billion dollar worksheets and guides. Uh, I can't talk today. There are so many worksheets and guides that are available on the internet. You may have them in your groups and they're all over the place. And this is just another option, right? If you want to go down, if you want to go to our website and download the worksheets that we have uh, to help you in working the steps, uh, feel free to do such. But Julie, I'm glad you are enjoying those worksheets and it's helping you to work through the steps. Just, and in fact, if you're not using mine, 
use somebody's, right? Just get started. Just work the steps. Jackie Post in the Super Secret Facebook group. And by the way, if you are not in the Super Secret Facebook group, just go to your Facebook application and search for Sober Speak Secret Group and ask for admission into the group and we will get you in there. Anyway, a Jackie Post in the Facebook group, she says, I'm finally here <laughs> with about five exclamation points in the Facebook group, she's saying. She says, I was incarcerated for seven months and this Sober Speak podcast helped me more than you will ever know. We had tablets and listened to the podcast every day. And then she says, John M. I, she's directly uh, uh, sending a message to me through the group here. She says, John M., your laugh is contagious. Well, I hope that's a good thing. She says, thanks for adding me and making every day count. Love, Jackie. Well, Jackie, that is uh, that just makes my heart... Mm, Flutter, is that the word? Uh, to know that you were in prison and uh, you were incarcerated and you were able to listen to our podcast while you were in there. I'm assuming there are others that are doing the same thing. That is absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you for sharing that with me. And welcome to the Facebook group. Lorraine also posts in the super secret Facebook group. Oh, here's it says. 365 days sober. We have a lot of people celebrating in the group. Pretty much every day, I think. But uh, this one kind of caught my eye. She said, 365 days sober. This is the longest I've ever done in 25 years of being out there. I kept coming back. I found my HP and a sponsor and I worked my steps. Today, I choose to feed my program and she spells program with an e on the end and that's how you can always tell if they're from like uh, canada or uh, I, I think if i remember right uh, lorraine is in the isle of right if i'm not mistaken i, I could be wrong with that and anyway today i choose to feed my program with an e on it and not my disease thanks for being there from everyone and thanks for being there for me everyone in this group and uh, and my sponsor and sober speak and especially john m and steve oh i gotta go back and delete that out hold on <laughs> last name hold on just a second let me see where i was <laughs> she said it in there though so all right so go back and delete that and the reason that uh, lorraine brings up steve's name is because steve is one of the people in the super secret facebook group who writes i am th- almost a daily basis if not a daily basis i call him our daily reflection guy and he does a great job what he does is he he, he takes something out of the big book. Uh, he writes it in there. He puts the page number and the quote, and then he adds some commentary afterwards, and he always does a great job. So anyway, I'm so glad, Lorraine, that uh, both me and Steve and the Super Secret Facebook group have been able to be part of your uh, journey, and congratulations on your 365 days. That's great. 
Amy writes in and she says, Hi, John. I live in Flowery Beach, Georgia. Georgia. And she says, I've been sober for two and a half years. I just started going to AA and found you on Spotify. I spent a good part of my day driving and enjoy your podcast. I just heard Debbie L's story, and that's the one. Uh, yeah, 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 she's even got the title here, Sorority Girl in the Neck Brace. And she says, and that really hit home for me. Thank you for taking the time to share Amy S. All right, everybody, guess what? That wraps up Uno Masamana of Sober Speak. I take this one week at a time. Hope to be back next week. God bless y'all. Uh, Keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you until then.